Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining our software in the long haul. What does it mean? Who are we? How did we get here? Where are we going? And all the other questions like that. Today, we have two other panelists besides the illustrious myself. Hello, everyone. We have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. And Justin Dorfman. Hello, hello. And then we have a wonderful guest on. Today, we have Dave Gandy. What is going on, internets? So Dave Gandy is, if you haven't heard of him before, one of the main people behind Font Awesome, which is the most widely used icon set on the internet. He currently lives in Arkansas. And can you tell me what I've already messed up in describing you? Now that's, uh, that's pretty much all correct. Just there's more to it, but yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Just to get the big elephant out of the room quickly. How are you doing right now? I know we're all curious about everyone at the moment, but I just want to are, are you okay? Is your family safe? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. My family is safe right now. We're in Arkansas. And so, you know, we're, we're all going to be in that same exponential curve at some point. Some states are ahead of it. But we are behind it. But what that means for us is that so far, we've been relatively undisturbed, I think, kind of in, in the day-to-day for the project. And we have been able to kind of continue just being remote. We've been a remote company. March hit uh, six years for us as a legal entity company. The, the Fawn Awesome project has been around for eight years now. But we've been really, really blessed in all of this to be able to, A, we always work this way. We were always remote from the ground up. We had to fight battles with investors from the very beginning on this. And yeah, we, 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 knew, it, we knew it was the right thing to do. And we knew that one of our company core values is that we want people to be able to live their lives the way that they think is right. And I think remote work really enables that for a lot of people. So I know that Fawn Awesome released something to help out with COVID. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, we're, we always try to, we, we think a lot about uh, the difference between how something comes off and what, what it actually is. And I think we waited a little bit longer thinking back on it to do this, but we released a set of icons uh, around COVID-19 awareness. So things like icons with people that are wearing a mask, uh, little virus icons, wash your hands, a little 20-second timer. Basically, we tried to do all the research, looked out there for the different organizations, for the things that they're trying to make people aware of, and tried to get icons to represent as many of those as we possibly could. We also open-sourced every single one of those in the solid style. Normally, a, a few of those are open-sourced, but we open-sourced all of these. You'll notice most of the medical ones we've got, most all of those are open-sourced too. Just because the stuff that's most critical is just really important for them to be out there for everybody. That is super awesome. That is so cool. I do love that you have a toilet paper icon. That's, that's probably my favorite out of all of them that have been released. Well, not only is it a wonderful toilet paper icon uh, by Joy Raphael, our phenomenal icon designer, it also shows you the right way to put toilet paper on the roll too. So we are, I was going to say, very, very... my wife is, pretty, is, is likely to be upset by this icon. That is the argument of like spaces versus tabs, like how you should do your toilet paper 
roll, like which way it goes. So, Oh, to me, it's totally a user interface thing. Totally user interface. Right. What is the most obvious way to present to someone where, where the paper is? There you go. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw us on a tangent just a tiny little bit, just for the heck of it, is I think that toilet paper, the reason why people put it behind is because they have little kids or they have pets that reach up and try and pull it. And so when they have little kids, they said, oh, well, we got to put it backwards, right? And so then you get used to it being backwards. But honestly, I blame it on kids and pets for screwing all this up. That's really quite fair. When we were training our dog, that was a very big problem early on. My wife read the trick of putting a can of soda, an empty can of soda, full of the little pull tabs. That fell off once and the dog never touched it again. I don't think I have any tricks like that for children, though. <laughs> wow. This was, this was just a fascinating conversation. <laughs> Not often we get to talk about toilet paper on Sustain. <laughs> so I was curious. You said you had a designer. And it's been eight years now with Font Awesome, which is just incredible. I remember when it was like eight years ago when I started using it. What's the story of Fun Awesome? How do you get money for icons? I'm confused by this. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. We've always been a product with users in some ways looking for a business model. It all started, gosh, it was, I guess it was, yeah, it was right at eight years ago now. I was working at my first startup that I had, I had left what I was doing before, was doing this whole thing full time. And the startup wasn't, it was kind of on its last legs. It was like at the very end. We were, we were making the website. And I just got so tired of either A, I didn't like anybody else's icons the way they were designed or needing to fiddle with them so much in Photoshop. And that was, that was rough. There were a couple of sets at the time that were way ahead of the curve and were packaging up as a typeface. And that was really interesting to me, but they were using normal old characters for this. And so it would read, if you made a camera, the letter C it would read C, the, a screen reader would read C. So not, not super accessible. When we discovered the private use area for, for the Unicode standard, we were like, oh, that means that we have a place that we can play in this. We're not going to run afoul of screen readers. And so we, I basically really, really just doubled down on that, took all the best practices I could find from everywhere, put together version one. It took about a month from start to finish. The big thing I wanted to do was to replicate all of the raster-based icons that were in Twitter Bootstrap, now just called Bootstrap. And... Wanted that to be a straight drop in replacement. So all you had to do was point at a different less file and all of your icons would actually just work exactly the way they were supposed to be working before. And because we would love to bootstrap and we were using it at the time. And so that was just the easiest thing for us. And it turned out, we decided to, we were, we were like, you know, should we, should we charge for this? This is kind of neat. And all of the hassle around needing to build a store and everything else at the time. I mean, there was no Shopify back then. There was just kind of so much involved in all of that. Really, honestly, though, at the core, we've gotten so much from open source. We had personally received so much from open source that it just seemed like an obvious thing for us to want to contribute this back. It had been useful for us. And so we thought it would be great to, be, to, to see if it was useful for others. So I got posted to Hacker News and it kind of took off. And uh, I, I had it originally hosted on my personal web server. That died pretty quickly from all the traffic moved it over to GitHub Pages. That was just kind of fledgling at how they were doing that. Uh, switched it over in the middle of it, didn't lose the URL or anything. So all the links and everything still worked, cut that over uh, and was able to kind of survive the day and answer all the questions and everything like that. And we just got really lucky. You know, sometimes things are just a lot of timing. Sometimes, you know, you, you've got this intersection of hard work and luck. Uh, and that was what a lot of it was for the way it hit for us. It was just, it was a thing that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. A lot of people trying to solve the same problem uh, and at the time, you got to remember what, you know, this was so much better because you just didn't have to deal with Photoshop. 
If you wanted to change the color of your icons, you didn't have to open up Photoshop, re-edit all of them, re-export them all. Oh my goodness, if you're trying to do something like a PNG sprite map, oh my goodness, that was just the, that was just the worst. The worst. Yeah. If you haven't lived through that before, you have, yeah, that, that, that's, one of, that's one of the more painful pieces of UI design back in the day when that was the standard. I remember when you guys came out and I remember watching the progress of, of this, fascinated by the idea that this project that initially came out as uh, uh, really just an open source project became an incredible business. I'd like to learn a little bit about the process and also the, the, the general response when, for example, as a developer, I imagine many people think, wow, you're asking for money when I've been getting it for free this whole time. How did you handle that transition? Yeah, that's a really good question. This was something that we had spent a lot of time trying to think about. There are a lot of different models for how you can sustain open source, as you guys well know. And we've always personally loved the idea of trying to find a way to give an awful lot away for free. The vast majority of the value away for free. Honestly, our biggest competitor in some ways is, is our own selves, our own free product. We know that. We're good with that. We're okay with that. But there's something about... We, we could have it all came down to what kind of a company we wanted to build. That's really what it came down to. The whole reason we started the company was because we wanted to continue to work with the best people that we have ever known in our careers. And we wanted to be able to have a way that we could, on a daily basis, continue to interact, get to know them, continue to develop those relationships, and also just build really cool stuff. And so that was what we, that was kind of what we were looking at. And if we did a company that was maybe we, we probably maybe we could have decided to uh, be a foundation, uh, really really go the five hundred one c three route and try to do try to do a foundation of some kind and go and raise money. That wasn't something that for us was something that seemed like a really a, a path that was what we wanted to be doing. And we've always liked the bar of you know it's it's really really hard to get somebody to use your product even if it's free. It turns out it's even harder, quite a bit harder, to get them to pay for a product. And so that was what we, were, what we thought. We thought that would be a really, really great way for us to be able to hire people, be able to have a company uh, where we could provide for those that we, got to, that we got to work with. And just really, it's about the relationships, right? The company isn't about making money. The company is about working with the best human beings we've known. And while that is something all on capability lines, yeah, these people are world-class and phenomenally talented, everything they do. That's not the most important thing to us. The most important thing to us as a company is who are these people in, in their character, in their souls, and who they are and what makes them up, right? That's the stuff that, that we thought was far more important. I think a lot of people make mistakes uh, when they're looking for people to work with, just thinking about their capability. Can they do the work? Uh, when in reality, that's really secondary to who that person is at their core. If you look at any major fiasco that's ever happened with you know, when hiring went wrong, it's almost never because the person wasn't capable it almost always comes down to who they were. And so those are, those are some things that we really believe strongly from the very beginning. And that path was the clearest one for us that allowed us to, as I said, a value of our company to live our lives the way that we thought was right. That was so beautiful. And I love the way that you're putting people first. One of the questions that comes to my mind is, how do you pitch that to investors who may not have that same line? How, how do you how do you tell someone who's giving you loads of money and expects you to, to work in an office and wear a suit and have certain deliverables that, listen, we're giving away all our product for free and we value people above products? It seems like there's a disconnect there. And I want to know what sort of bridge you, you built. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll start by saying this is not how we start a pitch meeting, for starters, right? You, you, you speak the language of, of the people that you're interacting with, right? It's a business transaction, and those are the things that they're the most interested in. Sometimes you get lucky to be able to already have some kind of a personal relationship with someone. And that's what happened with our angel investor. So about two years into the project, we were looking at the numbers. And I think at the time, the best we were able to count, we were on about 750,000 websites. And the project was, was really just continuing to gain a lot of momentum and a lot of steam. And there was, there, was, there was a person locally in Boston that I had helped advise on a couple of his angel investments before. And so I thought, you know what, let's sit down for coffee and, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to see if he thinks this is something that we, that maybe we could raise an angel round for. I didn't think we were maybe ready to do something institutional. So let's, let's see about raising an angel round. And so we sat down for coffee. I showed him the numbers, talked about where we were, how it was going. And really, again, just trying to focus on that, you know, that, you know, what an investor is there to do is, is to, is to make money on it. Right. And so you speak that language primarily. Uh, but when you know it's somebody that is more than just about money in their life, it makes it a lot easier. And our, our first angel investor is somebody that had been that kind of to us. And so at that meeting, I told them where we were with the numbers, where everything, how it was looking, where we wanted to go, how we thought we might be able to make money with open source as, as having a, you know, kind of a, a commercial project that got us sit alongside it. And his response was, you know, well, how much do you need? And he's, then, then he said, okay, well, why don't I just fund it? So we get really, really lucky. I, I'm not somebody who's uh, terribly great at fundraising. I really, really hate that process personally. It's not really where my, my wheelhouse is personally. So it was great. That, that was such a relief to be able to, you know, to walk out of that. And basically somebody that we knew, we knew taking money from investors can be tremendously risky, right? You're, you're especially when it's something that you really care so much about the people you're going to work with, the relationships. I mean, honestly, you care about people and their families. And this is, this is not something to screw around with, right? You don't screw around with somebody's employment. You don't screw around with somebody's family. And so, you know, with that level of care that we were taking, we were really, really happy to, to, have, to have somebody that we'd gotten to know over the past year. And we, you know, that just happened because there was somebody out there that we happened to have, a, a, you know, friend of a friend kind of a thing. And they needed help with something. We didn't ask for some consulting fee or something ridiculous like that, right? Like we just... So, okay, like, like all, let's, let's go and see if, you know, see, see how it looks, see how this potential thing for you looks and we'll give our advice. And because ultimately life is fundamentally about people and connections and relationships, money, as long as it's used to enable that kind of stuff is great. Otherwise it's kind of useless. Again, I'm not great at raising money. <laughs> how much have you raised? Yeah. So to date, and it's the same answer four years ago, it was the same number because we haven't raised money in four years. We've raised 1.076 million, I think, all told. No, that's, that was the Kickstarter. That was how much the Kickstarter made. I think it's 1.1. Somewhere around 1.1 is what we've raised total. We've been approached to do Series A by a few folks before. And basically, we, we ran projections on where the business was heading already. The money has never been our bottleneck as a business. Once we figured out how to do a commercial version of Fawn Awesome, money has never been the bottleneck for the business. It's always been people and hiring and doing that at a rate that is uh, sustainable. So that, you know, we, we always chose to run the business so that if something crazy happened in the world, we might be able to survive it. So we ran with an awful lot more cash in the bank than businesses like us are supposed to. We spent a lot of time really thinking more about the people that we were going to be, you know, even before COVID-19, right? Like you're, you're in the trenches with people every day. Who do you want to be there with, right? This is the thing. If I could, if I could like, uh, I, I, feel, I feel like I got such good advice early on in life about this, but like the more time that you spend with people 
who care about the same things, who care about important things, the more that you can spend your, who do you want to be in the foxhole with, right? Who do you, who do you want to be there with? Um, and I think that's such an important thing to think about and look for. And that was something we always cared about at the company and prioritized as highly as we possibly could. That we, we were lucky that we had a business model that allowed us to be that picky on all those things. Do your angel investors or angel investor, how do they get paid back? Like, is there an exit they're looking for or have you already paid them back? Can you go a little more into that for people who yeah. want to go down your route? Yeah, this is, this is always the question that any investor, one of the things that they care most about is, you know, not just can you run a business that's going to make money, but how do I get my money out? That's the, that's the point of this, right? And so you, you, you kind of need to understand a lot of the mechanics of how venture capital funds work. And what their goal is, their timelines, because once you, once you understand those things, you, inter- you understand a lot more around the incentives. There are a, f- a few different uh, ways that we could do it. It's a lot easier with an angel investor uh, because they don't have that hard, you know, kind of 10-year limit, 10 limit on the fund, and then they've got to be out kind of a thing going. So investors could be up for dividends, right? They could be up for, you know, every year based on the profit, pay a set, you know, pay, pay dividends off to, to the part owners. That's not something that venture capital is as comfortable with traditionally. And that's not something that, they're, that they really, if that's the business that you're setting out to run from the begin with, they're probably going to say, hey, that's not for us. Because what they want is basically as soon as you choose to pay a dividend, you're kind of saying we're not a venture capital business because what venture capital wants to see is uh, that rapid growth. And so if you have a dime that you made, you want to be reinvesting that. And so there's, uh, there, there's kind of a balance in all those things. So for us, one option is we go you know, dividend-based company. Another one is that we are acquired. That's a, that's, a very, you know, that, that's, a, that's a possible thing out there. It's not something that we've ever set out as our primary goal. You know, it, it, interesting if, if that happens potentially, but it, a lot more matters who that would be to, why the transaction would be taking place, and what's going to happen to the team that we care a lot about, what's going to happen to them in that, in that transition. Awesome. Can you, in the early days when we knew each other from the Bootstrap, Bootstrap CDN, there was other things that you've done before the big Kickstarter fundraise, which we'll go more into. But I remember when you were going for a laptop and that's kind of how we began a relationship. Go a little more into that so I can, I can refresh my memory. Yeah. So at the time, Justin, I believe you were with Max CDN, which is now StackPath. They're still yep. a huge partner of us. They're providing so much of our free traffic for all of the free services we provide. Those guys are, are fantastic. We love StackPath. They really um, are. I love them. They're great. Yeah. So such, such fantastic. We've, we've had such good, such good interactions with them and they continue. You know, that, that's an example of a, you know, a transition where a company was bought and it went for us. It went great. So at the time, boy, this was, you know, this was a straight up side project, really. And so this, this was the first time we, we, I think we thought maybe somebody might actually pay something for what Fawn Awesome has to provide. And so, you know, we, we ended up trading, I think, a, a logo in Fawn Awesome for the company to donate a, I think it was an iMac, because that was, that was what I needed at the time to, you know, to, to be in a better place with, to, get, to get the design to the next level. And so that was the trade. And that was, that was kind of the first inkling that, that we might be able to figure out how to make some money off of, off of open source. Yeah, you don't understand it. Or maybe you do, but we were so excited. Like when I was showing everyone that the Mac CDN icon was in Font Awesome, like all the people in engineering were like, what? How did you do that? And then, you know, David and I, who is uh, my boss and really good friend now, we just, you know, smiled ear to ear because it was just so amazing 
how we could help a project sustain itself while also getting something that was very valuable for us. So it was sort of this like win-win. And I was just, I just remember that day, like I can never, it's never going to go away. You know, it was just like, so it was like the beginning of my sustainable open source sustainability path. I was just like, oh, this is how it works, you know? So it's just, it was just so great. That, that's, that's fascinating to hear the backstory because I never knew the other side. And it's, it's really interesting what happens, right? When, when people are just thinking and creative what they're doing. Well, hey, what if, we, what if we tried that? Would that work? And that's really all starting a business and being an entrepreneur is, is just kind of doing that relentlessly down a certain path that you think is the right way to go. That's really, really fun to hear. Hi. Yeah, well, David, you know, David Hensel, he... He was like my collaborator. Like I would just show, like throw a, a crazy idea, like, "Hey, let's buy Dave a laptop, and then we will get our icon and fun, awesome." And it was just like, it, and it wasn't like, "Oh, let me think about it." He's like, "Yes, we should do that," you know. So it was really cool, and I'll never forget that. I just like it was so great. One of the things I I, I love the, the joy that comes from that and the excitement. I know there's something else in your history that's also given a lot of joy to people. I know I laughed a ton, and it also goes along with being an entrepreneur. Hey, why don't we try that? You mentioned briefly earlier that you had 1.6 million or something from a Kickstarter. Can you talk yeah, a bit was, about the Kickstarter? We ended at 1.076 million, which is still a record now for most raised by a software Kickstarter by about, I think, 1.5 or 1.6x, and most backed. So we actually, to this day, still have five times more backers than the next closest software project. We ended up with around, I think it was about 35,000 backers we had on the Kickstarter because we had such an affordable price point at the time. It was 20 bucks. Eric was a backer. Justin, were you a backer? You know it. Yeah, yeah we were was, all backers. <laughs> I, I believe he was pre-sold even before we launched the Kickstarter. We had already told him what we were doing, what we were going on, and we, we, we did as much the- as we could up front. I got to say, I saw the video before anyone else did. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't wait for people to see this. This is the coolest video ever. Yeah. So we had, it's funny, we as a company had basically that whole year uh, leading up to the Kickstarter, we've been trying a major experiment every single quarter, right? We had a lot of traffic from the open source and we were trying to figure out what some ways we could make money. Um, and we, we tried three different things for the first three quarters and all of them were complete and total failures. Uh, one of which I think we spent an entire quarter on and we got one new customer and that was it out of all of that work. But it turns out all of that failure was actually not failure because all of those things that we had done leading up to it ended up being tremendous assets when it came time for the Kickstarter. So we, you know, we're we, at the time, I think we had six months of runway left and we're kind of, you know, you know, you, you, get, you get that look in your face, like, what are we going to do? You got, you know, kind of the gritted teeth, like, what are we going to do here? Because at the time it was four of us, and, you know, and that's, that was a lot of responsibility, just thinking, you know, trying to take care of people. And so we said, okay, why don't we first ask people what is most important to them about Fun Awesome? And what are some of the things that we could do? So we put a survey on funawesome.io, and it ended up being at a 45-minute survey. I don't think we intended it to be that long. That was the average response time by the end of it. We had it up for a week and we had 6,000 completed responses in a week. So that was, and there was such good information there too. And it really helped us to understand our, our customers better. You know, no matter how good your intuition is on the first version of a product, the only way to get better is to talk to customers. You know, the, the best way is to talk to them individually. Large amounts of data can also be helpful too if you, if you think through it in the right ways. But that, that, that 
survey was so important for us. And it really just came down to, okay, well, why don't we do the simplest thing that's different from Fawn Awesome, the free version, the open source version, and try to charge for it. And the, the number one thing that everybody always wanted, you know, we had so many requests for new icons. There was no way, you know, I think we had at that time, maybe even like 10,000 outstanding requests for different icons. It was ridiculous. And well, there's no way as an open source project, we could do that many icons. We just didn't have the resources. We got a day job, we got families, we got stuff we've got to take care of. So we, we couldn't have done that even if we wanted to. And so we thought, well, why don't we charge people for more icons, all those icons they want, because a lot of them were so specific to a particular field, right? Whether it's medicine, uh, whether it's travel, whether it's marketing and sales or whatever it was. So that was the first thing was, why don't we make a version of Fun Awesome that has more icons and see if people will pay us money for it. And that, that was it. That was the big idea. And that was what the Kickstarter, where it came from and how it all got, kind of how it all got started. What were your expectations for the Kickstarter for Fun Awesome 5? Oh man, we were, we were just, we set the goal at 30,000. We, we felt, we hoped we could, we, could, we could do better than that. We were pretty sure that we could. We would have been quite happy at 100. That was our like, okay, if we do that, that'll, that'll be good. That'll give us, you know, a bit more runway to be able to, you know, do this. And then, you know, that runway will help us then have a product that maybe we can sell and maybe we can make the business sustainable just, you know, just on that on its own. And our like outsized, like crazy expectation at this was just like gangbusters was like, okay, maybe like 300,000. That would have been like if everything hit just perfectly and it was amazing. And we knew the stakes that we were hitting at, right? When, when you've got, an awful lot of users in a project that people love, it's, it's, you've, you've got, you've got the, you've got the attention and you've got the people. And in some ways, if you just get one thing, right, that'll be enough to actually have a business. And so that's what we were, that was, that was the risk we were, we were trying and every quarter. We were trying something that was big enough on its own that it could make the business, make it, make it work, make it sustainable. And so we also knew that, you know, Kickstarters run or ran at the time, I think it was like 30 to 45 days. We made it, I think it was about 40 days or something like that that we ran it for. But we knew that, you know, during that time, the people on our website would be about, it's about a million people on our website in any, in a given, any good month, maybe a million and a half at the time. And, but in a year it was 20 million, but we can't run a, we can't run a Kickstarter for 12 months, you know, to get to that full audience. So we were like, okay, so we need something that people are going to want to share. We're going to need something that people are going to want to share you know, maybe, maybe we can do humor. Maybe we could try that out make it something that people are going to want to share with their friends that'll get out there that maybe we can get over the inherent limitations of distribution on our website of, you know, of, of that, of that audience in a given month. And so we, we, you know, we, we, we put everything into the, into that video. We put our hearts and our souls into that. And it, you know, on, on, on the, the other side of it, right before the business is sustainable, right before it worked, we saw one of the final edits of it. And my co-founder, Travis, had been peripherally involved in the writing and the shooting and everything else. And he's, he's just laughing the whole time when it's done. And then it, it finishes. And he's, 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 he's near to tears because he, he, you know, he's, he's such a funny guy. And he, he, just, he just pauses and he says, you know, that may be the best thing our company ever does. That video. And so that, that was just such a fun, like, okay, okay. Like this, you know, we, 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 we gave it everything we had, right? There, there are those funny times in life where, Everything is on, on, on a pinpoint, right? You've got this giant risk. Everything comes to a head, right? And it's all, it, so much is, is, is can we give it the focus and the time and just the go after it, right? To risk it and to go after it because you see the opportunity and put everything you've got in, in it. Leave nothing on the table. And it was so much fun that that video, that even before the Kickstarter, it was just, it was great to know that we had given it everything we had. So that if it didn't work out, 
hey man, that's 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 nothing that we need to we, we need to worry about or regret because we gave everything. If it's something that you know we're not able to do, can can we run a business that makes enough money to survive? I I don't know, right? And 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 that answer to that question still wouldn't necessarily tell us. But it was it was such a great thing to be able to put everything on the table and know that if we did the best that we could, we didn't have to worry about the outcome. Chills. Um, I know I laughed a lot when I saw it. It was just like, what? What is this? This is from an icon company that I use on my free websites, and yet it's basically like you know, comedy level, professional level video quality. And so you certainly did a good job there. If you want to see how not to make a Kickstarter video. In the annals of Kickstarter, there is a project called the Font Awesome Black Tie Kickstarter. It is me on screen. I shot it. I edited the audio. I did everything myself. And it is bad. That is another example of a failure where you discover something really important. I knew I should not be on screen. That's not me. That's not me. I knew that I should not shoot it. I should not edit it. And I probably shouldn't even be the primary person writing. And so that was the point at which we realized, you know what? We know that we've got just enough money left in the bank that we can go hire some professionals to do this well. And so we went and we, we found the best team we could possibly find anywhere. They're called Knox Avenue Productions. They're in Los Angeles. And they were just absolutely fantastic to work with. The writing by the end of it ended up being about 50-50. But it was just so great to work with such a good team. The one, one of the things that we also knew was we didn't want to do on-screen animations. We wanted it to be real, right? We wanted it to be in the real world um, and to take a digital product that doesn't exist in any way and try to find, it was, it was such a fun challenge to try to find what's the right metaphor for this thing, right? And we started off in the script, we started off with a laboratory. Okay, laboratory. Well, that's great, right? Because icons, there's so much technically you've got to get right, right? You've got to worry about the details of the compression. You've got to worry about sub-pixel rendering. You've got to worry about all these technical details, right? Exactly what's the math on this particular icon to make sure that it aligns at that size on pixel, it snaps to it, and it's pixel perfect. There's so much technical for that, right? But it didn't capture the, the, the soul, right? Science sometimes, you know, the, a picture of a laboratory, there's an awful lot of soul that goes into real lab work, right? There's an awful lot of creativity and soul, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite play that way on screen. And Brian our lead designer, he at the time, his idea was, what if we tried a bakery, right? Because baking is such that beautiful mix of artistry, visual artistry, and science, right? Because the science, oh my goodness, if, if it looks pretty and it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter, right? If it didn't rise the way it was supposed to, right, the science side of it, uh, then it's not going to look the way it's supposed to. It's not going to taste the way it's supposed to. There's just this beautiful mix of, with a bakery of art and science. Plus, you wouldn't have the best part of the video where it's, you changed the recipe, didn't you? <laughs> that was the best. That, yeah, we, we had so much fun shooting that again. And there were all, there, there were such wonderful actors that we got to work with. Such fantastic. Rob Michelson, our, our, lead, our lead actor for that is wonderful. Albert, he's, he's, the, he's the funny little secret. If, if you're watching the background, he's always in the background of that video. Always doing something. He's dancing or he's doing something. He's just so much fun to go back and rewatch because he just exudes joy. I don't know how somebody does that on screen so well and so thoroughly, but he's just, he's, he's just, he just exudes joy. And then uh, the, the, the guy who played Milton, such, such a great actor. So, so yeah, that, that whole thing just turned out so well because we knew that, we knew that there are, there are, we've got a lot of people who 
are very, very loud when they want to tell us there's something they don't like about Fun Awesome. They'll, they can be very blunt. And the internet's a place where, you know, people are blunt. Sometimes people are having a bad day. Sometimes people just aren't great with other humans. And, you know, th- th- that's just kind of the way it is. And so we've, we've developed a, a bit of a thick skin around a lot of it because it turns out most of the time when people are criticizing us, there's something of real substance underneath it. And that was the line we wanted to walk with Milton. You know, you know somebody who's super complaining, but he's right. What he's complaining about is 100% correct, right? You change the recipe. You, you have this thing that I love and you're messing with it. Uh, that's risky, right? And so we, we want to address that. We, we thought, you know what? That's totally true. That is such a great criticism of it. And we, let, let's, let's, let's hit it head on. Let's talk about it. And it turns out what we were able to do, it goes back to all of those icons that we had waiting to be made. Because we found a business model for open source, a way to sustain it, version four of Fun Awesome had 675 free icons. Version five of Fun Awesome has over 1,500 free icons, right? So, and, and that's not even including the brand ones, right? It turns out in terms of actual icons that aren't brand related, we have close to three times the number of icons. And that's all because that we were able to find a business model that made it work and be able to keep going and make more and give away more. And we know this all the time. We know that we give too much away. We get told this all the time by anybody. You know, we've, we've got some awesome, fantastic advisors, and that's pretty much the number one thing they're going to say first. And we know that's true. We know we could sell more if there was less in a free product, but that's not how we want to run a company. And so we're not going to. We like the way it is just like that right now. Mad respect, mad, mad respect for you all. I, I share similar sentiments on how, how we run our company as well. I'd like to know, though, do you think that Phone Awesome is a Cinderella story? Is it, is it one of those unicorn projects that is likely not to be reproduced? What would you say to the open source community in, when they ask, well, we can't be the next Phone Awesome because that's not possible? What would you say to them? Everything is impossible until it's done. And then it was always inevitable. I have no recollection of who actually said that first. But it's, it's been our, our experience again and again, is that when you believe before you start something that you can't do it, you will always be right. No matter what, you'll always be right. And hey, I like being right in life. It's one of my, 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 biggest, my biggest feelings as a person is I love being right. And that's great. That one's great to believe because if you believe you can't do it, you will always be right. And that's one of the problems, right? That's one of the problems is if, um, if we don't have faith in something that doesn't exist, it can't come into existence. Until you believe that something could become real that doesn't exist yet, it can't, right? And that's, that's, that's just so like pie in the sky up in the air, right? Let, let's talk, let's get into the nitty gritty of this, right? How does this actually like work in the real world, right? Because we each have capabilities, right? We have these things that we know that we can do. And we don't know if we're going to be able to do it. Really what it comes down to is that's a, that's a crisis of faith. That statement is a crisis of faith in some ways in, your own, in our own abilities, right? And this is, this is, this is true for me too. Uh, this is something that I face every day. Like this is something that everyone their entire life faces the existential inner murmur of, am I good enough, right? Am I good enough? No matter how successful anyone ever becomes, am I good enough to do it? And it turns out if you give in, you will never know until you lay it on the table, until you put it out there and you're okay if you stare, you stare it in the face, right? You look at it and you know what? You know what? I could fail at this. So what? So what if I fail at this thing? That's not who I am. This thing isn't who I am. This isn't my identity. That's not what's important in life. But can I make it? There's a mountain there, right? And it turns out I got the gear and I've done this for years. 
let's go climb it. And so the question is, what are the mountains that, that are out there for the gear that you have or the thing you've been training for? Look for it. There are opportunities everywhere. And as, as hard of a place as the world is right now, this is, it's really, really hard right now for a lot of people in the world. It really is, right? And as it gets worse in America, we are going to know that not just existentially, we're going to know that personally more and more. But at the same time, when there is so much upheaval, there is so much opportunity at the same time. There's so much opportunity on so many different places, in so many different places on so many different levels to be able to go and do something. And if nothing else, help someone else out, if nothing else. But if you, if you believe that you can't do it before you start, you'll always be right. I love you. I love your words. I think they're, they're really, <laughs> sorry. I've, I've tried to always put a serious spin on things, but it just, I'll just, I'll that say was a great show. Too, All right. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. So this is probably a good time to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Dave. Before we go, we have a couple things we do. One of them is a spotlight where we highlight cool projects or things that we think need more eyes on them. I'm going to go first. I'm going to be untraditional and not do a software project. I'm going to do The War of Art by Stephen Pressfields. It's a book that basically reads exactly like everything Dave Candy just said. If you have a project and believe you can do it, do it now, do it now. It's how to fight with resistance. It's changed my life a lot. I highly recommend The War of Art. If you like anything that was just said, it's like that sort of stuff. And it's great. Eric, what do you got? For me, one of the projects that I've found recently is a website called helpwithcovid.com. And this, this website, I, I wanted to know how we could get involved uh, in the community to help, especially taking our special talents that we have. So this website, helpwithcovid.com, if you go there, you can really find all of these community efforts based on your skill set. So if you're a software developer, you can find projects that need help fight COVID, if you are a biologist or if you just are a designer, not just a designer, but if you're a designer or, or, or whatever, you can find projects that need help or add your project to the list. So I wanted to draw attention to that at this crazy time in our life and suggest people check it out, helpwithcovid.com. Thank you, Eric. Justin? If you haven't Googled it already, I suggest you Google Fun Awesome 5 Kickstarter video and just prepare to watch it like five times in a row. It's so funny and great. So that's, that's mine. Let, let me ask you this just real quick. Between the Font Awesome 5 video and the Unicorn Poop video, which one wins? You, <laughs> you haven't seen the magical Unicorn Poop video for like the, the Squatty Potty? Oh I am God. intimately aware of this video. That and Donna I have Shave a Squatty Club. Potty. I do too. Because yeah. of the video. <laughs> because of the video. <laughs> I could have got a stool, but instead, I'm like, I'm buying the squatty potty. My mom's no, like, why no, do you I'm have a trainer change. toilet? I'm like, I don't. It's a squatty potty. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying, Dave? I was just saying that that was one of our inspirations. That and the Dollar Shave Club video were two of the big inspirations we had for kind of tone that we wanted to take for the whole thing. I love that unicorn poop video for squatty potty. That is that it's genius. It's beautiful. It's lovely. And sometimes it's nice just to remember that there are good and lovely things in the world, like unicorn poop. Besides unicorn poop, Dave, what's your spotlight? <laughs> so I, I think when times are really easy in the world, we don't, want, we don't want nice, happy, easy things. We want gritty and real, right? But when the world is plenty gritty and real already, 
sometimes it's nice to be able to take yourself to a different place in a different world. I am a massive, massive fan of a writer called Brandon Sanderson. Yes. If you have not read the Mistborn series, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's lovely. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that's just beautiful from start to finish. I could literally go on for another hour on why this is one of my favorite and most beautiful things that I know of in the entire world. Brandon Sanderson, Mistborn Trilogy. I also highly suggest the Words of Radiance series. Kaladin is, I think, his best character. He's a fantastic writer who just literally unicorn poops out novels every year. It's amazing he does. how fast and he he's, writes. He's writing, two, he's writing four and five in that series right now. I'm going through Oathbringer for the seventh, eighth time right now. Yep, um, yep. Those are great. Those are hefty, and those are those are sizable novels. Those are Sanderson novels. The 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 Mistborn trilogy is like Sanderson light. So yep. each book on audio is only about twenty five to thirty hours. So they're they're just lovely. The way that he can build a world, build realistic characters, and build a story. That trifecta, right? Most authors are good at one. And that, you know, they, they can kill at one of those. But for somebody to be so good at the same time at all three, I read anything that man writes. Thank you. Highly suggest that. Dave, if you're on the internet and people want to follow you and follow your avatar around and hang on every word you say, where can they do such a thing? Uh, if you want to hear me grumbling a little bit too much sometimes, uh, my Twitter handle is Dave Gandy. And that's pretty much just about the only place I live on the internet. All right. With that, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you. And stay safe, stay healthy, and thank you for the awesome icons. Thank you, guys. I love you. I know. I love you. I know. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.